Tangent Tank, Solving the Housing Crisis, a Tangent Original Series. This Tangent Tank dives into the world of prop tech companies tackling the housing affordability and supply crisis. Join our panel of judges, Jeffrey Berman, partner at Camber Creek, Zach Ahrens, co-founder at Metaprop, and prop tech entrepreneur Edward Cohen, as we ask the tough questions and challenge each founder and evaluate their startups based on innovation, potential impact, and scalability. You'll listen firsthand from the founders themselves as they share their stories of determination and resilience. 1.8 billion people around the world do not have adequate housing. Housing affordability reached an all-time historic low in the US as over 10 million renters spend over 50% of their income on housing. Amidst these challenges, there is hope. Across the world, we're seeking startups that leverage technology and talent to tackle this crisis head-on. If you are a passionate founder, please apply by emailing your company's deck or video to tangentcommunity at gmail.com. Hi, welcome to Tangent. I'm Edward Cohen. Hi there, I'm Jeffrey Berman. I'm Zach Ahrens. Today on Tangent, we have Sukesh Shikar, founder of Altgage, affordable mortgages for everyone. Hi, Sukesh. Where does this podcast find you? I'm, I'm based in Houston, Texas. Houston, Texas. Awesome. Fun fact, when I got to New York and I asked where uh, Houston Street was, people looked at me super weird. And I'm like, come on, you can hear my accent. You know I'm not from here. Tell me where Houston Street is. And they were like, what are you talking about? Did you tell them you're from the South and that's why you pronounce it that way? I told them from the Deep South. <laughs> deep South. Anyways, Sukesh, so the housing market right now is like a, like a hot pocket taken out of the microwave too early. It's somewhat hot, but it's still pretty frozen. I mean, we have never seen housing affordability deteriorate this quickly. I don't know who's buying a home right now. Mortgage purchase applications just hit the lowest point in 28 years. Home price to median income in the U.S. is the highest it's ever been since we started counting 70 years ago. Sukesh, you've been working on Altgage. So tell us, how can Altgage help solve the housing crisis? Thanks, Ed. Just a little bit about myself. You know, I'm an immigrant, a PhD, and the founder of Altgage. And what I really care about is the American dream of owning your home. And like you correctly said, that, you know, housing affordability is in the shitter. And, you know, there are really two reasons for that. One is on the supply side of things, right? There's not enough supply coming on from both the builder perspective and, you know, there's not enough turnover because people are locked into their low rate mortgages. It's called the locked in effect. But the second piece of it is really around, you know, can you make mortgages affordable? And of course, you know, at a very high level, you know, the, the Fed does what it does and structurally rates are higher. But there's also a lot of fat in the mortgage market. You know, I feel like there's no reason the mortgages shouldn't trade as close to the 10 year treasury as possible, which is what they're based off of. So what we've built is deal optimizer. It's the Google search of mortgages. Essentially, consumers enter, you know, very simple information about their home and we extract complexity to provide them essentially three simple options, a low rate option, you know, a low cash to close and the best deal, which is sort of this combination of low rates and down payments. I can go into a little bit about the tech, but at a high level, the benefits that consumers will get is a mortgage that's one to one and a half percent lower than what they're getting on the market and down payments that are about half the size and then fees that are about also half. And I can go into the nitty gritty details of how we do all that. But the reality is there's just a lot of fat in the mortgage markets and I'm determined to cut right through it to get people the most affordable mortgage they can find today, given where sort of structural rates are. So just, just so I understand this, and this is 
Jeff for people that can't differentiate between me and Zach. And again, you can't see us, but we're identical. Just for clarification, your company focuses on finding buyers a cheaper mortgage. Are you doing that? And when you say cutting out the fat, would you say that's like a race to the bottom on the fees that you're stripping out? In which case I want to understand how you're making money or is there something specific in the way that the mortgage is structured that you're taking advantage of that other folks in this industry, some fairly sophisticated companies and entrepreneurs have not been able to figure out? All of the above. So we have built this rate optimization API and the API does four things. The first is we reduce rate dispersion. So any mortgage marketplace, that's what they're doing. They're reducing rate dispersion by just quoting you rates from multiple lenders, right? But our technology starts where a marketplace ends. That's just the first step of optimization, right? The second thing we do is we go deep into the rate stack. So mortgage rates are not a discrete number. It's not like six. You can get a rate of six, 5.5, 5.25, 6.5. There's a cost associated with a lower rate and a credit associated with a higher rate. And what we do is we calculate the valleys in the rates and essentially we skim to find rates that are cheap to buy. So we're not just looking at the headline rate we're also skimming local and global minima to find rates that are super cheap to buy. And the reason this happens is because, you know, mortgages are pooled, packaged and sold. So as these pools fill up, lenders will discount the ability to get into a certain mortgage pool. So we just skim and basically we're buying mortgages on sale. That's step number two. Step number one is rate dispersion, reducing that. Step number two is discount point optimization. Step number three is there are a lot of parameters in a mortgage that rates are insensitive to. So down payment, for example, is insensitive to rate. I know people think about LTV and such, but you can go from a down payment of 20% to 15% and your rate actually falls. I'll explain in a second why it falls. And then if you go from 15 to 10.1, it stays exactly the same because you know they move in these discrete buckets. So I can go from a you know, down payment of 20% to 10.1%, and there's no effect on the rate. In fact, it goes a bit lower. And we do this essentially, you know, programmatically to lower the down payment. That's step number three. Then step number four is we unbundle and shop for PMI separately. You know, the boogeyman with, you know, a down payment less than 20% is PMI, right? But right now, I can find PMI of $50 on a $500,000 home purchase if you're borrowing 10%. So basically, you're paying 50 times 12 or $600 a year to borrow $50,000 more dollars. The cost of that extra capital is 1.2%, right? You could just stick that 50,000 in Marcus by Goldman, collect 4% and pay your PMI in perpetuity. So those are sort of four steps that we do programmatically to find essentially, you know, you can get a quote for 6% with 20% down, or you can come to our sort of engine and find 5% with 10% down. And you don't have to explain this to consumers. Consumers just see a low rate mortgage with a lower down payment, they're sold. We don't have to explain how we're doing it, just sort of, we sell them on value. Well, you do need to explain it to us. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's what I, I, I sort of, I sort of just, uh, you know, at a very high level did that. But there is another component of fees racing to the bottom. And if I, I'd love to sort of explain something that I feel just burns me to my core on how mortgage brokers are compensated. Let me just ask, you know, you guys are prop tech, you know, investors. How much does a real estate broker or a real, realtor make, buyer or seller? some number of basis points on the on the mortgage no 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 a realtor commission what is a realtor what is oh, realtor like, a, like a real estate broker yeah yeah they make five, uh two and a half percent each it depends depending on the market but anywhere between two and a half yeah. to six percent exactly um you know average is still like you know three percent mm -hmm. do you know how much a mortgage broker makes less 25 basis points usually how much 25 basis points 
they make 200 basis points. The average mortgage so two percent, so but it's still it's still less. It's less, right? But their job is also less. But do you know how they get paid? So how does a realtor get paid? Once transaction closes. Exactly. Exactly. How does a mortgage broker get paid? If the mortgage gets originated. Who is paying them? So that actually depends. It depends if it's conforming or non-conforming, right? No, nobody freaking knows. So there are two types of compensation. It's called lender paid compensation and, and borrower paid compensation. Or, yeah. So I, that's what I'm saying. It depends because on your settlement sheet, it'll say whether it's lender or borrower or compensation. That's part of the negotiation. No, it's not. Most people don't know that, right? It also depends on state legislation, doesn't it? No, in 95% of cases, you know, it's lender paid compensation. So every single mortgage broker in America, you know, nine and a half out of 10 take lender paid compensation, but the lender is not running a charity. So what they do is they bake in that into the rate. So instead of getting a rate, if you have a headline rate of six, which is, you know, sort of what the lender is doing, they, the mortgage broker will quote you six and a half percent. And basically, you know, it's sort of like the, you're trading, they will pay you 2% upfront for getting the board to accept a half a percent higher rate. And what that does is it's even worse than realtor compensation because a half a percent higher rate on a mortgage translates to 10% more interest expense over the lifetime. So you could either pay the guy 10 grand upfront or you end up paying 50 grand over the lifetime of the loan. And 95% of people, you know, charge the, the 10 grand from the lender and then force the borrower to pay 50,000 over the lifetime. And this is not a choice. This is not a choice. It could be a choice if the borrower asked for it, but the borrower doesn't know to ask for it. So everybody just, you know, basically takes him in the back and, you know, screws him over a long time. So what I'm doing is that I'm testing this ethos, which is I believe, you know, broker comps should be borrower paid. And if you can see how much you're paying, you'll actually negotiate it, right? So we charge half, we'll charge only 1%, and we do it transparently in section A of the origination. Wait, 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 hold on. You want the borrower to pay the commission on getting a, a mortgage? Correct. What is this? Why shouldn't they? If they're paying less money, why shouldn't they pay it? Because I, I suppose if they're paying less money, but I think the, 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 like the syllogistic end to what is happening here is the lenders are going to say, well, wait a second. Okay, so the borrower is, is paying the fee to the broker. Why don't we just cut out the broker completely? Borrower doesn't have to pay anything, and now they feel like it's even less. So the borrower gets, so the, the broker's out. The, 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 the lender makes their loan. The borrower takes the loan. No, no broker. That doesn't work. So the largest lender in the country is Rocket Mortgage. They were a full retail shop. They were, you know, essentially there. But then they realized they couldn't expand business. So they opened up the broker channel. And now they do like, you know, essentially an equivalent amount of business to the broker channel. You know, same, you know, concept is, you know, at some point there's a touch point with a mortgage broker. I agree with you. And my goal ultimately is to drive fees from 1% to 0.1%, have it be fully API based. But it takes time. It takes time to figure out, you know, how you do that. And you're right, you know, I'm that's the hypothesis I'm testing. Will people accept it? You know, I've done, we launched it last month, you know, we're 20 loans in. Not one has even asked the question, what is this line item? Because of all the other things my optimization engine is doing, they were like, oh, I got to pay 100 grand. You're saying it's 55? Great, I'm, I'm paying 55 with a rate that's 1% lower. Like, they're just looking at the headline of what's my cash to close and what's the rate that I'm getting. But usually you have them at like the rates with a five handle while I'm getting quoted seven. And so you're, and so essentially you're stepping into that fee position, that, that mortgage broker position and saying, look, lender, you're going to give me a lower rate because you're no longer going to have to pay me. Borrower, you're going to pay me because I'm getting you a lower rate. 
that's that's what's happening but you don't even really have to have the conversation with the borrower because they're just seeing a low rate and they're capital no, i understand that. i just want to make sure i understand yeah, that's right that's unlike right. my friend zach here that's right i do not have a phd that's right i don't have a phd yes you do it's I you're do. a doctor and awesome yeah, <laughs> parking policy has become a huge obstacle across many cities whether your city needs comprehensive traffic improvements, more bike lanes, or more housing, parking policy is always in the way. The Parking Reform Network is here to support real estate professionals and community members working in any discipline impacted by costly parking mandates. Car dependency has played a big role in suburbia. It has also played a major role in the story of how we ended up with inefficient sprawl, climate change, and a housing crisis. By reforming how our cities work and to what land uses we dedicate our spaces to, the Parking Reform Network helps make progress on our climate, transportation, and housing goals. Now you can also have a positive impact on your community safety and quality of life through research and collaboration. To get involved, please visit parkingreform.org. To learn about the Parking Reform Network's resources, please visit parkingreform.org or follow them on Twitter at parking underscore reform. You, you talked about four phases. Yeah. And I heard a lot of terms that I don't think rightly the average person knows, like sure. market rate dispersion. Can you explain that? Like there are, there are, this is, this is something that I think is top of mind for not only investors like me and Zach, yeah. but also for borrowers and for banks and for, I don't know, the federal government. Sure. I think we should pause for a little tangent, tangent glossary section where you can run through yeah. some of the key terms. Yeah. So yeah. just go through Sukesh, the five, six main terms that you were talking about that may not be, may not be familiar to lay people. Yeah. So let me break down the first one, which is people say you should shop for your rates. You know, the question is, why are you shopping for your rates? Right. Because there's variance in rates. So, you know, dispersion is just a measure of like how variable is somebody's quoting you five and a half. Somebody's quoting you six and a half. And you got to think about it like if I get three quotes, you know, there's a 90 percent chance that I don't get the worst rate unless I like I'm super unlucky and always pick high cost lenders. Right. And then you have to think about why is it that rates vary so much? And that really just breaks down into like, what is my cost of capital? Which is where, where is I where am I getting the money from? And how efficient am I at originating mortgages? So one of the reasons, if you go to a large lender, right, your, your structural cost of capital is going to be lower, right? Because they're doing a lot of loans. But step number two, these folks also tend to have very high operating costs. So your goal, when you find a low rate lender, it's two things working together, which is they're doing a lot of loans and they're operationally efficient. Better.com is none of those, right? They, they are not operationally efficient, right? And they do $20 billion in loans. Rocket Mortgage does a quarter of a trillion. So Rocket Mortgage typically has the lowest rate or UWM if you go to any pricing engine. UWM stands for United Wholesale Mortgage. They're the largest wholesaler in the country. Actually, let me do one more glossary, right? And the glossary is there are three ways in which you can get a mortgage. The first one is you go to your bank, right? You just go to the, your bank or credit union. That's the first way. The second way is you got a guy and the guy is usually referred to you by a realtor or somebody. That's a mortgage broker. So when you go to your bank, that's called retail. And when you go to a guy, that's essentially wholesale, right? So, but that wholesaler, the broker, they don't have money. They're just 
connecting you with a wholesale lender, but they're basically the you know marketing and sales operation versus a retail bank is doing their marketing, sales and lending all together. So if you think of like, you know, lending, marketing, sales, a retail institution is doing all three. A wholesaler is just doing sort of the lending underwriting and then the broker is doing the marketing and sales. And then you mentioned PMI as well. Can you explain PMI? So PMI stands for private mortgage insurance on a conventional loan. So conventional loan just means it's below a certain size and that loan is sold to Fannie and Freddie, which are two government sponsored enterprises. We may, we may need a little bit of um, glossary there too, but essentially this is the bread and butter loan. So when you take a bread and butter loan, you know, if you put less than 20% down, you have to pay private mortgage insurance and that mortgage insurance, you are paying it, but you're not paying it to the lender. You're essentially paying it to an insurance company that is underwriting risk that in case you, you default, they will pay out the lender. So essentially the lender is, you know, just buying insurance for themselves, but the, you know, the home buyer is paying the insurance to effectively insure the lender. Now, PMI is often the boogeyman, right? Like your grandpa told you, your dad told you, somebody very old told you that, you know, you should always put 20% down. And that worked when home prices were 150,000, right? Now the average home price is over 500, depending in Miami, it's like probably 900. Nobody has $180,000. Like I worked at McKinsey for six years. Like I was a junior partner, like my colleagues, even they don't have $180,000. Like nobody has $180,000, right? So everybody is at some level going to pay PMI. But the key is you want to find just like you shop for car insurance, you want to shop for cheap PMI. But what lenders do is they just give you a shitty PMI provider. And what you really want to do is like get a super cheap one. So the key in finding an affordable mortgage is a getting a structurally low rate from somebody who does a lot of loans. B, you know, they're an efficient shop, so they don't have a lot of fat in the marketing and sales. And C, you also want to get low PMI. If you manage to assemble that, you're, you know, cutting out mortgage rates at every single level. Can, can, I, shift, can I shift directions for a second? So sure. you're, you're essentially, what you're doing is you're, there's a lot of, there's a lack of transparency, obviously. There are a lot of middle people in the process here. You're adding transparency and you're enabling the end customer, the borrower to shop for all types of things, which ultimately lower their rate. And they're the competitor, which is either a bank or a broker, is bundling everything together, making it more opaque, obfuscating it, and therefore making it more expensive. And so you are enabling home affordability because you are enabling less expensive mortgages. You're cutting the fat out of the mortgage costs. Is that correct? That's correct. And at every level, you know, like, you know, we, I made like an issue treatment when, when I got my own mortgage. I appreciate that. I'm even willing, unlike Jeff. So Jeff is a real VC, looks at things like numbers and discounted cash flow analysis. And he digs in. I, you know, he once called the CTO's second grade science teacher to make sure that this person was really good at C++ back in the day, right? But like, for me, I'm more into like existential issues, you know, big things. I, I get bored by things like numbers, you know? So I just read a stat though, and it said just existentially for, for this business, there's no doubt in my mind it's a great business as it relates to being a more efficient mortgage lender. I think my issue existentially is I just read a stat that said, even factoring in modest home appreciation assumptions, it's now cheaper to rent because of how, uh, where interest rates are. It's cheaper to rent in 95% of major U.S. markets than it is to own a home. 
And you mentioned at the beginning of the call that the American dream is home ownership. And so in my opinion, I'd like to challenge why that is. Has that, is that something that was fed to our forefathers in this post-World War II, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, white picket fence package that to your point earlier, today is no longer working. And maybe instead of recalibrating everyone's mortgage payments and fees, we should be recalibrating people's assumptions toward home ownership equaling the American dream. What, what, what's your response to that? It was in 1913, Woodrow Wilson, you know, under threat of communist Russia, sort of, you know, came up with the FHA and instilled this idea of the American dream. And the idea was if people owned their home, they wouldn't turn into communists. They would, they have their sort of, you know, they have their sort of place under the sun, right? But if you think about, you know, value, right? The, the value of a home goes up for two reasons. One is land is a finite resource. You know, do you know who the largest landholder in the U.S. is? Uh, well, hold on, let me guess. So aside from the federal government, I would say Ted Turner, the Catholic Church. Uh, let's throw out something weird, maybe. The Mormon Church. Oh, you know what? Not no. Mormon Church. And let's do something weird for the fourth one. It's Bill Gates. Dame right? Judy Dench. Bill Gates, you know, ostensibly. He's the largest landowner in the country. He's the, he owns he's the largest landowner. Yeah, he owns something like, you know, like Larger a percentage than Ted of Turner. U.S. farmland. Like, you know, in, in yeah, my Ireland. understanding, by the way, is John Malone is now the single largest owner of farmland. However, these ownership structures, we shouldn't belabor it since we're up on time. Yeah, yeah. So the ownership structures are heavily shrouded in multiple layers of LLCs. So it's hard to know. It's hard to know. Uh, it seems like this is not true. The largest landowner... Wow. So it says Emerson, Emerson family. family. Um, so, but John Malone is yeah, the John largest. Malone's, John Malone's just anyway, all the above. They're, they're at 2.2 yeah, million and gaining quickly John on Malone is yeah, 2.2 million. Quickly. Anyway, so the Emerson family. What point were you going to make about the Emerson family? <laughs> oh, they're a family. It's sort of like, is the richest person or family? So the, the point I was trying to make is if you want a more equitable country, right? The way to make it more equitable is not by taxing the rich. It's, it's by raising the base. And the number one way in which you raise the base wealth in the country is by getting people to own some piece of land, right? The, the value of the home on top of it sort of just appreciates with inflation, but land is the only thing there right? because it's a fixed amount. It will go up in real terms, right? And not everybody's a sophisticated investor. You know, you guys are VCs, you have access to a lot of different deal flow, but the OG deal flow is buying a piece of land, right? If the moment you buy a piece of land and build something on it, you have now created a base level of wealth, right? It's not, and that never happens in renting. It's true that maybe on a you know cash basis, you know, yeah, renting might be cheaper, but then you also have to also assume that people are taking the difference and in investing in the S&P and not trading, right? So there are a lot of other things that have to happen for that wealth to come up versus if you buy a home, you just, you are going to build wealth. If you look at intergenerational wealth creation, it's the difference is home ownership. I wanna, uh, yeah, I wanna hone in on, on Zach's point here. So mortgage mortgage rates currently are are back above seven percent, uh, which means that at, at that rate, uh, buying a median home in the U.S. is above four hundred and fifty thousand dollars, or that means uh, around a down payment of ninety thousand dollars and over twenty five hundred dollars of mortgage payments. Uh, 
I, I would love, you know, for this historically, uh, you know, wealth generator to be to be one again, right? However, we live in a fundamentally different society with a lot more people uh, and, and with everyone just moving more and more to the cities, even though during COVID we saw a little hiccup there. But yeah, in terms of, of setting this promise, like I, 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 I completely see the information asymmetry that is in the mortgage industry and how there's maybe a lot of inefficiencies that we could solve using technology or using just more fairer models. But at the very core, yeah, I'm just worried about that supply demand, uh, you know, imbalance. I, 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 I want to go back to the point you just made, Sukesh, not what Edward said, notwithstanding. But you made a blanket, because this goes to the heart of Zach's question. It's not the land or the home. It's some asset that people own as a base of wealth. That's the word that I want to debate. Because this notion of hard asset, when somebody buys a condominium and they're sitting on a piece of land that a hundred other people have a stake into, that is not, I think, what you're referring to. You're referring to the homestead where Ma and Pa have their cows and their sheep and their chickens and they're toiling in the land and the, the value is accretive to them because we're not making more land. We're not in the GCC. We're not putting islands in the in, in the ocean. But when you look at cities, which is where the affordability crisis really is, you're not buying a piece of land, you're buying a sliver of a sliver of a sliver on top of other people who are buying slivers and slivers and slivers. And so I have a I have an, an issue fundamentally with the notion that that which I, I'm pretty sure Woodrow Wilson didn't envisage when he created the FHA that is the, is, I think, is a disconnect because now the opportunity for people to own various different types of assets, I'm not going to call them hard assets, assets, building a wealth base, the ability for people to access such is so much more than it was 110 years ago. No, I agree with you, but not in a risk-free way, right? Like when you when you buy a home, right? It's um, it's as close to risk-free. You know, home price appreciation is effectively guaranteed because land. You lost me there. You lost me there. Now, this might this might be. Hold on. I I in 2008 when the last real estate crisis happened, there were homes that were built in the Everglades in Florida that should never have been built. You're telling me that if someone bought those homes. Oh yeah, that never goes down in value. Look, we're, we're talking about you know a Swiss cheese model of market failures, and there was basically fraud in the mortgage markets, right? And mortgage brokers were getting paid for checking no documents, and they're like, "I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the fundamental point that you're making that only homes are the only assets that never decrease in value. That's just simply untrue." In a ten-year cycle, they've never been known to decrease. If you look at ten-year home price appreciation, home values have never decreased. I would say if you look at areas of Michigan or areas of Pennsylvania, that is untrue. I, I think if the economic drivers are not there, then the then the value yeah. of the home. Yeah, I think I think it's less it's less the idea because I can to Jeff's point, right? If you had you would put you can put the money in bonds, and you have a way more sure income stream. So it's not then. Uh, yes, you do. If if I buy treasury bills, that is way less risky than a home. That is not not. Not in real terms. Not in real terms. And, you know, look at what happened to the bond market. And I would argue yes in in real terms, but but let let 
the issue is with the liquidity. What owning a home does, and in my opinion, this is unfortunate at times, it locks people in, whether real or not, to the idea that they can't sell it or they shouldn't sell it. And because of that, they are, it's similar to being a VC, where there, I'm sure there are times, Jeff, where you would love to have liquid equity on some of your positions and sell them, but you can't. And the fact that you can't and you don't pull the trigger and sell too early is what fundamentally creates the wealth. And that's a nuance that people unfortunately don't understand. So I would argue it's not the appreciation. And by the way, there's no guarantee you're gonna have appreciation. And I would like to, for next tangent, we should do some research on that 10 year appreciation thing because I also don't believe it. I can fundamentally anecdotally pick a bunch of markets out of my head right now where I know that not to be true, including points in time in Vegas and Phoenix and all over the country. But regardless of that, the, the issue is effectively that owning a home is has been a force function for people to hold on to assets multi-generational in a tax-efficient manner. However, I would argue if somebody had the discipline and the patience to hold an annuity or a fixed income portfolio, they would get a arguably better return with less risk and less hassle because they wouldn't have to own a home. Right. Yeah. I mean, according to national appreciation values average around 35 to 3.8% per year. But I'm sure when we zoom into different markets, we'll see uh, drastically different realities across time as, as it is. Yeah. And, and there's, it's, it's not like, it's not like the bond market is totally risk-free, right? There were a lot of senior citizens who were told to buy long-term bonds very recently because they're retirees, they saw last year the value of those long-term bonds decrease by 25 to 30 percent. They're never they're, these people are not going to live long enough to see maturation at par on those things. So I'm not I agree with you partially on your point about the real appreciation as inflation adjusted. Um, and fixed income is far from risk-free. The 60-40 portfolio, which is sort of the classic portfolio, right? it had the worst performance in like something like 100 years last year. Um, but look, my point is they are, you know, buying a home, it may not be the most like efficient way of building wealth, like maybe VC, right? Like you have much more asymmetric outcomes, but it is the most effective way, right? It's like the most guaranteed, simple way that you don't have to spend a lot of brain power to build it. And a mortgage is just key to that, right? So I'm not, you know, I'm not building a wealth management tool like. Right. And because you're right about, you are right about that. And we've gone on a pretty long tangent. I want to understand specifically how you do what you do. Because in order for your company to be investable at a venture scale, people like Zach and me need to believe that what you have created is not just a better mousetrap that someone can't copy, but that it is repeatable, scalable, and that you have protectable IP. So let's go for it. Let's hear it. Yeah, and it boils down to unit economics. Like even if you can get all your customers cheaper mortgages and your product's easy to use, people still have to find your product and it's a very crowded market. Yeah, so I'm doing three things that are non-traditional, which is I'm not advertising. So the first thing that I'm doing is I reached out to NAR and talks with NAR and we can see, you know, can we create a relationship and embed our rate engine into every realtor's website, right? Because ultimately they are the source of trust 
And the value prop to them is very strong because we're increasing their customer's capacity to borrow and likelihood to close the deal. Because a lot of people are scared and stepping out at 10%, and we say, hey, hey, rates are still at five and a half. The likelihood of them continuing to engage in the conversation is higher. So essentially our realtors are our sort of sales and marketing engine, not the mortgage broker. That's number one. Number two is I'm mining title data. So essentially I'm buying title data at like three cents a pop, and then I'm mining it to say, who are the specific sort of ideal customers that I'm going to reach out to and say, hey, you know, we should do a refinance. The mortgage insurance premium dropped 0.3%. Our rate is half a percent lower. We'll bring you a 0.8% reduction. And then I'm doing a combination of text, email, and direct mail marketing. And then step number three is, you know, I'm working with different corporate partners in, in Houston. I've reached out to like an ExxonMobil or United Airlines. Uh, my own former employer and we're saying hey this is an employee benefit you know if you contribute x percent if you do one percent we'll essentially do the mortgage for free right because that's all i'm i'm charging so i'm just taking essentially b2b to c levers there's another one where i'm talking to various startup founders who are doing interesting things and it's a couple of conversations and they're sold on the idea because they might be building a design custom builder or they're doing like rental rewards and we're just attaching the mortgage on the back end um but just structurally lower rates interesting and what is the protectable IP? So the protectable IP is, you know, one is sort of our, our rate engine, basically how we optimize things. Um, but look, you know, I fundamentally believe, you know, the only comparative advantage is the pace of innovation, right? It's like, first, we built the smart payments algorithm, then we built two other things. So it's just sort of like, how many pieces of innovation can you stack on each other? So the complexity increases, the complexity of copying it, you know, just sort of increases, right? Sort of it's like the square, right? They, I think it's called innovation stack. I like that idea. It's like, just keep innovating. So can you take us through your innovation stack? Because I, I think, and this is just an angel investment for me, but I invested in a, in a, in a mortgage company. I will not say its name because uh, I don't think it's going very well. <laughs> and fortunately it was, a, it was a very small angel check many, many years ago. But yeah. Zach, I don't know if you guys have invested in any mortgage tech uh, companies, have you? We've done about 12 to 15 uh, mortgage tech deals. Yeah. So we've invested actively. So, I mean, what's been interesting, when the market was booming, our tech-enabled originators and brokers were booming. And our companies that sell marketing tools, SaaS, lead gen, back office, workflow SaaS to existing lenders and servicers, they couldn't get anybody on the phone because they were too busy doing loans. So now we've seen that flip a little bit. And obviously people who originate or broker are, are struggling um, and people who are, cause just volumes down, right? So it's a game of gaining market share while the market stays bad and figuring out how to get through it. But the more of the like SaaS and like lead gen and market MarTech companies in the mortgage space are actually thriving because all the existing incumbent lenders and originators are like, oh God, I now have to actually work for my lunch now. And so they're interested in things like lead gen to get more customers. And they're also interested in, in, in cost savings, right? You're seeing. But that's more, that's more on the service side versus like what Sukesh is building or has built. No, it's origination and brokerage too. It's, it's, it, we have companies that sell into large originators, you know, whether it's like a, a firm like Wells or something. And those companies are, are seeing traction because just, you know, the, the, lend, the originators just weren't, weren't available to learn about the software for the past two and a half years. 
but no, it's not. Yeah, it's, it's tough. Obviously, it's tough for everybody across the board for sure. You know, in in residential and commercial mortgage, and then also everything that's a business ancillary to it, right? And that includes title, that includes appraisal, right? That includes you know, so anything sort of connected to that closing statement you were mentioning is 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 obviously struggling. There are few fewer closings. So, guys, I think uh, it's worth zooming in for a minute in that particular innovation where you mentioned that the typical search when you're searching for rates in a mortgage is horizontal search, but you're implementing a vertical search where you're able to take advantage of, of other elements in the in the real estate, in the housing cycle. That's right. So what, what I mean by a vertical search is, you know, mortgage rates are published in a table. Nobody sees the table because, you know, they just publish like one rate, right? Nobody sees the table. But what this table has, of course, it has your rate, it has your payment, it has your taxes, whatever. But next to the rate, there'll be a cost associated with the rate. And essentially what we're doing, we're running a very simple like you know, function that says dy by dx, right? Where is it the cheapest to buy this rate? So it's basically automated rate selection based on where it's cheapest to buy the rate. Now there's a fair amount of or orchestration you need to do there. You need to get all the lenders, you need to source them, you need to put them on the table, but fundamentally we're picking out valleys in rates. Where is it cheap to buy? And that no pricing engine does. Because what the pricing engine does is like, let's say here's the rate, you can pick it, you can do the calculation and you know, some mortgage brokers will do it, some won't. But the fact that we do it, like it's, it's just a very simple optimization, yeah? But the key in the innovation stack is, is not that, like that in itself, you know, somebody could reverse engineer and once they figure out what we're doing exactly, you could, but then the fact that we're unbundling and rebundling PMI, right? We're also, another part of the optimization is we are looking at insensitivity to rates, not just sensitivity to rates where the cost is low, but insensitivity rates because the other big barrier is down payment. So our ability to lower the down payment while lowering the rate at the same time from portfolio theory, it's like a more efficient frontier, right? Which is like, can you lower the rate, the down payment, the PMI all at the same time? And what we're doing is we're just pushing out, you know, the efficiency of the mortgage coupled with transparency and lower fees. And how big is the team that it takes to do this on the product side, engineering, marketing? Three people, right? Because we use Plaid, we use Method Financial, it's an embedded debt API. We use more tech to get our rates, right? And we have these little pieces of code, you know, you can think of it as like a couple of microservices that we've built and then just all stitched together with a consumer facing front end, right? In the key is to be super lean. Like right now we're talking with Flagstar, they're the nation's third largest servicer. And the idea is like, can we embed our smart payments API? We might publish it on Staircase, which is sort of a mortgage, you know, API. Uh, they're like the AWS of mortgage, right? And I would love to sort of even expose our things because I don't think I can scale to like 50 million people. So I just want to get people the cheapest mortgage as fast as possible. So Zach, aren't you in staircase? Look at that. Indeed I am, Jeffrey. Bam! A close friend of mine from business school is the CEO and a former Blacklight executive is a CTO. It's an excellent company. I will set you up. We can go on a tangent and make Did that. Did we just make a shit off here? Is that what you happened? Did. Indeed, you did. By the way, for anybody who doesn't know, a shidach is Yiddish for connection. That usually leads to marriage, but we'll see if Sukesh has what it takes. Stay tuned. Well, Sukesh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'm, I'd like to look at your, your company, and I'm sure I can't speak for Zach, so I'm not going to say that he would like to look at it too, but now I kind of forced him to say, oh, I'd like to look at it too. I would be very interested in... Uh preventing Jeff from obtaining an allocation and just block Bam! completely. I love it. How do you say that to your doppelganger? Is that nice? I know it's, it's horrible. It's horrible. 
well, we're going to look at it again. Like we said at the beginning of the episode, this is not a, uh, a solicitation for investment. This is a conversation between old friends and new friends. Uh, but we hope everyone enjoyed this uh, as much as as much as we did. This this was awesome. Sukesh, thank you for being a good sport. My pleasure. My pleasure, TV. To learn more about Sukesh's company Altgage, please visit deal.altgage.com. That's deal.altgage.com. Thanks for tuning in to Tangent Tank, solving the housing crisis. Don't forget to follow, rate and review Tangent and share this episode with a friend. This series is edited by Daniel Mora and produced by me, Edward Cohen. Remember, collaboration is our superpower, so stay curious and always be learning.